Hello, I am Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who Target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them, or even collect the hardcover editions, or maybe the Pinnacle American editions. For all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual. Tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video junkyard podcast you are listening to the doctor who target book club podcast happy listening hi there this is richard franklin and i play captain mike yates on doctor who you're listening to the doctor who target book club podcast enjoy your travels Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the sticky task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations because spiderweb's sticky. <laughs> My name is Tony Witt and today we have an occasionally sticky three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, and that would be me. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time, it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. We also have our semi-casual fan, one who's seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And this time around, it's the wise and witty Alison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Alison. Greetings from the depths of summer. <laughs> yes. And finally, we have a fan who knows more than I... W- do about this show and more than I ever will, the tantalizing Trey Corte. Hey. Hey. If you like what you're hearing, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash ZWTargetBC. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book, since we know you have so many of them now that you keep them in a radioactive chamber that it's death to ever enter. Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air, and as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart, uh, here we go, deep breath, (gasps) Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, and our brand new patron, Dave Davis. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Yes, that list is getting longer. We also have a Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. 
We now conclude the John Pertwee era with Terrence Dick's novelization of Planet of the Spiders. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Planet of the Spiders, adapted by Terrence Dix from the Robert Sullivan script that aired from 32474 to 42774, published by Target Books in October 1976. As of this recording in August of 2020, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 120 pages. I have to make a correction before we get any further. Speaking of unabridged audiobooks, I stated in my rundown last time that Monster of Peladon had not been released as an unabridged audiobook. It turns out I was mistaken but not for the reasons you might think. Trey actually pointed this out to me right after the original version of the episode was released, telling me that the audiobook had been released in March of 2020, just as the COVID-19 thing shut us all down. And apparently the people at Wikipedia didn't even know about it because that's where I tend to get my info, and they didn't list it. And at the time I wrote the notes for this episode, uh, they still hadn't, so I made an edit so that it's in there now. So remember, kids, trust Trey Corte. Never trust Wikipedia. <laughs> Have That's a t-shirt that says In Trey we trust. In Trey we trust, exactly All others right. pay cash. Exactly. Now, about this book, Planet of the Spiders is only the 11th Target novelization to be published, and it's Dick's sixth book. That is really difficult to say. That explains any number of things, including the cover art, which depicts two men who have no resemblance to Pertwee or Tom Baker transforming into each other. It's a resemblance, just I wouldn't call it photorealistic. No, not at Well, they never are, are they? <laughs> Until no. we get photo covers during the Davison era. Significant spoilers on the back and front cover, and given that this is essentially an event novelization, it came out between The Green Death and The Three Doctors. And its publication date is relatively close to its air date. It, air, it actually was published just over a year after it aired, which is not normal. It may also explain how Dick seems to have mastered the art of tissue compression, <laughs> just like the master, you know, by rendering a six-part story in just 120 pages with nary a Doctor Who in sight, except on the back cover, and still including that wonderful prologue, which doesn't appear on screen. The cover artist, Peter Brook, only did four covers. He didn't like science fiction, and it shows. <laughs> Don't make me do this anymore. Exactly. <laughs> and I it know, looks, right? looks like the Doctor is uh, like trying out open mic night material on Sarah. <laughs> it's like, could you just remove the spider and then... <laughs> <laughs> Let me just show you this. I learned this yeah. magic trick in this uh, right. fancy dance. We'll talk about this later after you remove the spider. <laughs> right. More tellingly about this book, it was also published after the next book, which is the fourth Doctor's first story. So it came out in March of 1975 after that story aired in December of 1974. And 1975 is also the year that the Target Range does its first non-Pertwee novelizations. The first Tom Baker story is obviously one of them, while the other one is one we've already read, Jerry Davis's Doctor Who and the Cybermen. And there are reasons for that, but we'll get to them. Just not tonight. Now, a couple other things to talk about here. It's a big story for the obvious reason, because it's Pertwee's last televised story. He will come back for anniversary stories in 1983 and 1993. It featured his custom-made Hoomobile for its second and last appearance, but this time Dix actually deigned to put it in the book. 
Okay. I don't remember the first appearance, and I felt from the book like I should. Well, that's because it was an invasion of the dinosaurs, except it wasn't in the book. Yeah. Because Malcolm Hulk obviously thought, oh, this is stupid, and put it in. And that's why. That's why it seems like you should have seen it before, because if you were watching the stories, you would have. It's also the last appearance of Mike Gates, our favorite box of rocks. <laughs> Richard Franklin would appear briefly in the 1983 anniversary story and then would appear in audio dramas with Tom Baker, of all people, in the 2000s. It's kind of strange, that. Still playing Mike Yates, though? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it's weird. The Fourth Doctor calls Mike Yates, of all people, for help with <laughs> something. Yeah, it, the, those audio dramas went straight over my head. I mean, it was wonderful to have Tom Baker in an audio drama, but the story, yeah, never mind. Lupton was played by John Durth, who was the voice of Boss in The Green Death. So imagine Lupton and Boss having the same voice. Hmm. That tells you something. Yeah. Cho Jay was played by Kevin Lindsay, who played Link in The Time Warrior. Professor Clegg was played by Cyril Shapps, who appeared in Tomb of the Cybermen. Eric on the planet of the people enslaved by spiders. Mandela's three? By Yes, exactly. It was played that Metabilis three. That's right. It's just by this point, I don't care. It was played by Gareth Hunt, who would later go on to great fame in the UK as Mike Gambit in the New Avengers, alongside Joanna Lumley. In fact, that's the first thing I ever saw him in before this. And Usain Churchman, who voiced Alpha Centauri, provided some of the Spider voices who were all female, and most touchingly, Kismet Delgado, the widow of Roger Delgado was hired by Barry Letts to provide the voice of the Great One. Oh, hmm. that's nice. Yeah, it really is. John Pertwee would, of course, go on to many other roles after leaving the show, despite claiming to have lost just as many due to typecasting. The only other time he worked for the BBC was on a show called Virtual Murder in the early 90s, playing an arsonist and pornographer. <laughs> and he said it was a Unique hard combination. Yes, it was a part he considered one of the best things he'd ever done. Oh, well then. Probably it was hard to so... get typecast as an arsonist pornographer. Yes, I imagine he liked it because it was so against his type. Because just about every other character he played was either the Doctor or something bizarre. Speaking of bizarre, he went on to play the lead in another show geared for television. Tell Shit! <laughs> he went on to play the lead in another show geared for television. Shit, why do I want to say television? For, for what medium? <laughs> I don't know. He went anymore. Oh, for children. That's what I was trying to say. He went on. God, I have to leave all that think, in now. I don't think television sounds appropriate for children, no, I'm gonna say. It's not. Especially okay. Oh, stop. Pornographers. Oh, stop. No. He went oh God. He went very on. mature content. Oh, for fuck's sake, he went on to play the lead in another show geared for children called Wars of Gummage about the adventures of a scarecrow from nineteen seventy nine to nineteen eighty one. Holy shit, that took forever to say. He also did numerous movies and stage roles, one of which was Terrence Dick's Doctor Who, The Ultimate Adventure, is a stage play, which thankfully was not novelized, so we never have to talk about it, though it is available as a big finish dramatization with Colin Baker, who also played the role in that show. 
In addition to anniversary stories, we've read the two radio plays he did and his final appearance as the Doctor was in the fan-produced film Devious, filmed just before his death of a heart attack in New Jersey in 1996 at the age of 76. The Third Doctor still appears in audio dramas, though, since voice actor Tim Traylor does such a convincing imitation of him that there have been several seasons of Third Doctor audios alongside Katie Manning as Joe Grant. Pertley took over the show at a time when the ratings were failing and the show was facing cancellation, and while it still struggled to keep its ratings up throughout his run, he did a great deal to help it become the success it is today. So... Thank you, Mr. Pertwee. Mm-hmm. How many seasons was it total? Ah, uh, five. Oh. So up to that point, he was the longest-running doctor. Yeah. Then Tom Baker did what Tom Baker usually does, is come in and screw everything up. And he <laughs> ruined that record. <laughs> actually yeah. not at all what I was expecting you would say. I love Tom Baker to pieces, but as you'll see when we get into his era... Yeah, I actually I should say this. I love Tom Baker to pieces as a as an actor. I love the Fourth Doctor. Tom Baker as a human being sometimes at times can leave a bit to be desired. Let's just say that. Wasn't and wasn't he notoriously kind of uh, difficult? Yeah, would be the word. Yeah, yes. difficult. He had his reasons, but yes, very difficult. In fact, we'll. We'll talk about that. He's no longer difficult like that. He's just goofy and eccentric now. But at the time, he was goofy, eccentric, and difficult, which is just a <laughs> toxic combination. Oh, my God. I mean, granted, Pertwee was kind of that way towards the end of his run, but that's because he was bored well, that's and because wanted to his, move on. Arguably, his ensemble had broken up. That, too. That, yeah. too. So this really is the last gasp of greatness for the Pertwee era, even though the next story is essentially a Pertwee story, it just doesn't have Pertwee in it. Okay, let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? Who is up for that? Oh, go ahead, Trey, you're our guest. It's happening, Brigadier! It's happening! Sarah cried out. The Brigadier watched, fascinated, as the lifeless body of his old friend and companion, Doctor Who, suddenly began to glow with an eerie golden light. The features were blurring, changing. Well, bless my soul, said the Brigadier. Who will he be next? Read the last exciting adventure of Doctor Who's third incarnation. (laughs) Yes, that's exactly what the back cover says. It gives away the whole goddamn story. Well, I would argue it only gives away the final paragraph of the story. I'd be disappointed if I were buying this for that story. Yes, well, especially if you look at the cover, it also gives... (laughs) gives the shock ending away because there is really no shock ending at all here yeah so first impressions dalton what were your first impressions (laughs) Ooh, spiders um (laughs) kind of sad to see pertwee go um but excited uh, for tom baker to come in as the fourth doctor okay allison first impressions i remember you telling us that the transformation illustration on the cover would look nothing like pertwee or baker but i actually really like the graphic even if it doesn't look that much like them the hairstyles are lifelike enough yeah and then for much of the book i kept expecting the transformation to be more prefigured and then i just forgot about it entirely oh so impressions were at first i thought this was one of terence dick's 
better effort and then the plot ran completely off the rail as with my last impression <laughs> yeah i figured that might be the case trey what was your first impression meh <laughs> my first impression was actually i thought that it was going to be great because of what they did with the prologue and then meh it's i'm feeling underwhelmed with okay. it okay well that's understandable because certain parts of it are indeed underwhelming in fact, so that we leave the best for last, let's try to tackle the story somewhat in story order if we can, which means we'd start with the prologue, which is one of the few prologues that we get from the Perui era, and it kind of, for me it kind of ranks right up there with the Cave Monsters prologue because we get Joe Grant coming back, mm -hmm. which is just amazing. And perhaps I was missing the obvious, but I didn't realize who that was going to be up until they gave the name. Oh, good. Okay, I think that was kind of his point, <laughs> yeah. because he was being tricky with the pronouns and all that. But yeah, that's a scene, obviously, that does not happen on screen. And if you read the book first and then saw the TV uh, version of it, that was really disappointing because you were kind of hoping that Katie Manning was coming back for that one story. And of course, she wasn't going to come back for that one story. That's ridiculous. Uh Trey, in your case, did you see the story first or did you read the book first? I saw the story first, and that was the case for most, a lot of these because I was very young. It would have been the third story that we recorded on VHS with Death to the Daleks being the first one. I'm um, sorry. So it was one that, oh, I, I missed the Death to the Daleks one, but I'm a big fan of that one. But I think for the book, that's, I think, the reason why I'm so underwhelmed because I remember when I first read it, I got really excited that they added this prologue. And I was hoping that there would be similar fleshing out of the rest of the story. And apart from some bits here and there, I just feel like after you get that prologue where it seems like it's tying so much of the Pertwee stuff together, I just feel like the rest of the book is missed opportunity after missed opportunity. Well, given the plot that he was working with, you can hardly blame him because, well, yeah, you've got that script written by Robert Sloman, and if Robert Sloman's name on the script, then you know Barry Letts probably co-wrote it. And if memory serves, Barry Letts also directed this one, didn't he? I think, yes. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, this is basically the John Pertwee swan song, but it's not the Barry Letts Terrence Dick swan song because the next story is going to be their swan song because they actually do stay on long enough to produce Tom Baker's first story. In fact, that story was recorded in the same recording block as this one for obvious reasons. It's a, it's a good way to save budget and all that, but the difference is night and day when we get to Tom Baker's second story. So, where do we start with this one? Yeah, let's not talk about the regeneration just yet, but let's uh, delve into the other bits, if we can. <laughs> I'd be curious what Dalton and Allison particularly thought of its attempt to be a Buddhist parable and the treatment of Buddhism in, in this, because I think that's where I'm feeling it's because Barry Letts was a Buddhist, and so he wanted to do the sort of Buddhist parable. But I'm wondering if, you know, you handed the story to a Buddhist, you know, if they would be offended or annoyed. So I was just wondering what people thought of the Buddhism angle. The bits in the monastery didn't really bother me. I, it seemed like the only people that they focused on there were the bad guys 
and then you have Tommy and then uh, Choje and the doctor's teacher. They don't really talk about anyone else. So if that is the only sample of practicing Buddhists that you get, yeah, it kind of paints it in a, in a negative light. I, I wondered about that too about the other people because there's a bit where Sarah is first there and she's touring and she peeks in the room and it's people are meditating and they comment on it. And interestingly, in the TV version, um, there are some women in that scene, some extras who are meditating, but it's, it's very male dominated, this um, monastery. And I just was wondering about the poor people who like signed up for this retreat in good faith. You know, there's, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, well, shit, there were some spiders in the, I mean, that's probably the cover story. Oh, we've had a spider infestation. We're going to have to shut it down. You know, is Choji or Kanampa, are they going to be issuing refunds? You know, like that's, I really wanted to know, like, you know, that that's the, the sort of people who, they, they just signed up for this thing in good faith and now it's it's ruined and without much explanation. So I've, I'm, and especially if they're trying to escape from the troubles of the world and do some soul searching. And this isn't the place to do it. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, that's... Better call the Orkin Man, yeah. Which makes me think that there's a really good Doctor Who story waiting to be had about, like, like men's group drumming circles and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> my uh, oh knowledge my of Buddhism is very shallow uh but i don't think that um i i got a, a little switched up sometimes uh, between the sort of semi-permanent residents of the monastery versus those who were this there for the meditation center people who might you know come in for a short, short amount of time but are there really all that many people who are going to a buddhist meditation center who are also interested in like conjuring and witchcraft and whatnot <laughs> i don't think those are necessarily adjacent things and i thought it Ah, that there were so many people there who were sort of ripe for the plucking for conjuring spider gods and whatnot. It seemed odd that so many Buddhists would be interested in, you know, the dark arts. Yeah. 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 And you have to wonder if Barry Letts has had some really bad experiences with fellow Buddhists at some point or other. And it's been at one of these retreats. I wonder if it was also trying to be a comment, because Lupton just seems out of place to begin with. A man who's bittered about losing his salesman stuff, he doesn't seem the sort... I could see maybe his therapist said, well, maybe... And that's where I kind of came up with the idea of the men's retreat, drumming circle, because that, that sometimes are meant for men who've been damaged. Mm-hmm. And, and that would tie into, like, I want power, I want power. But that's not something that you associate with the average person who goes to a Buddhist retreat. I can no longer work... I have to bang on this drum all day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, court-ordered Buddhist retreat. There's a short story. There's, yeah. <laughs> and I don't know, like you said, Barry Letts was, had he had some disappointments. And it's interesting because this is season 11 where they've, you see, the production team is down in the dumps because Katie's left, Roger Delgado died. And so now, then you had Malcolm Hulk being disillusioned with environmentalist and invasion of the dinosaurs. And Barry Letts, who's a Buddhist, is writing about bad Buddhist. And I'm just just wondering because in the time period it was kind of when the Beatles kind of made Buddhism trendy and mm-hmm. there's that whole late 60s early 70s Eastern religions are something exotic and it was something that upper middle class white kids were experimenting with and maybe doing things in bad faith. But this doesn't seem to critique that so much as play into it it's just a plot device it's not it's not an example of people who are misunderstanding the concept of exploring Buddhism and somehow misapplying it. It just seems more like it's just used as a a plot device or a gimmick. 
you're, you're absolutely right. I agree with you. And I think that's why I feel like there's so many missed opportunities because... It seems like a book that a Buddhist would complain about. <laughs> well, ex exactly. And considering that Barry Lutz was a Buddhist and he, it meant a lot to him. And Terrence Dix and Barry Lutz were good friends. So like, I would have hoped that they could have honored that a little bit more and actually given some of these characters some more motivation or believable motivation. Because you kind of get a bit of the parable of the doctor at the end, you know, having to confront his transgression or whatever. Mm -hmm. And there's these themes of the whole idea of a spider on your back influencing you. I mean, that's, you know, what is it, the monkey on the back you hear about, but I'm not an expert in Buddhism. I would have liked a book that would have maybe, well, but just like a couple of extra pages devoted to maybe exploring why these characters were doing that and what truths they were searching for. And Terrence Dix doesn't seem interested in doing that. Uh, at the end, when Campo says, uh, we are all apt to surrender ourselves to domination, not all spiders are on the back. I thought, wouldn't the turn of the phrase be, not all creatures on the back are spiders? I, I got confused. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't work out too well, does it? So are maybe we talking about some kind of conflict between Letts's vision and Dix's vision? Is Dix kind of, eh, I don't want to say making fun of Letts, but just kind of failing to get it? I haven't seen the episode, so I don't know how this differs. Mm. Well, it's compacted because this obviously was a six-parter. And this has been compacted into, you know, for a six-parter, it is indeed 120 pages. So whatever he didn't get, he essentially left out. In fact, I'm thinking of at least Trey probably you can remind me. There is a scene where Choje is talking to Sarah about the concept of Buddhism. And I don't remember that speech being in this book at all. The one where he says to yeah. his delight, he discovers that he does not exist at all. And I think it's reworked a little bit in the book. I mean, I think they have with that conversation, but you know, she asks him about if they're doing these things, are you going to be bringing up some bad memories or bad emotions? And, you know, mm -hmm. she's doing it more from the journalism point of view there. Right, right. Yeah, it, yeah, it, there's a lot left out. And part of it may just be Dick saying, oh, well, that's Buddhism stuff. We can chuck that. And it may just be Terrence Sticks looking at this freakishly bloated story and saying, okay, let's pull this down into something that the kids can read in an afternoon, which is about 120 pages, because this is possible to read in, a, in an afternoon, whereas the story takes up an entire afternoon by itself. And when... When Yates is listening to the sort of, I don't want to call it Buddhist battle of, battle of wits, maybe the trading of aphorisms, and he says, you know, he, or he thinks, oh, maybe it'll all be meaningful to me someday. I'll understand it someday. I took that as the uh, author's self-insert of, I'm sure this is all very profound in a way that I will understand at some point in time. Or he's just making fun of it. Like, I think that's just more, I think we're getting Dix's interpretation of Buddhism. So. I had that exact same reaction at that exact same moment. I thought, oh, that's Terrence Dix. Because he was, he, he kind of got this with like Monster of Peladon. Like when any, there was something that seemed anything that was a little bit more progressive for its time, like the feminism with Sarah, you know, you kind of get a sense that Dix is, okay, this is where it is. If we have to do the women's lib thing, we're doing the women's lib thing. And then he has like some sort of like aside about it. 
And that's kind of how I feel. Yes. Um, okay. Here's some this. Buddhist wisdom. All the kids are into it, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is Barry Lutz thing, just making him happy. <laughs> Not to satisfy the brute. I mean, the Buddhist. Mm. <laughs> yes, exactly. Mike Yates, speaking of Mike Yates and not understanding, this is the last time we will see Mike Yates. He became 500% more interesting in his last two appearances. Really? Mm-hmm. Yes, I notoriously referred to him as a box of rocks and a fit of peak. Um, <laughs> no, I actually, uh, I actually really enjoy the first part of this book. And uh, when I look at my notes where I copied and pasted things that I found interesting, that was almost, it's almost entirely content uh, up to and including the big, I was going to say car chase, the multi-vehicle chase. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, and then it didn't become terrible, but not only did the, plot become extraordinarily convoluted but it, i thought the first part was a lot of fun and that we lost a lot of that but i actually liked the idea that after mike yates you know a joined a sort of i'll say end of the world i guess we call it new beginning of the world a utopian cult and a fit of delusion and then b committed a little treason along the way and c it didn't even work at the end of that <laughs> I, I liked the idea of him going on buddhist men's retreat to a drum circle <laughs> yeah. and it, well instead of just you know fading off you know from the cast entirely i and i thought it was significantly more interesting than than what we'd seen before it, it was yeah. a good ending for the character yeah i like that there's a little bit of a redemption thing happening with mike there mm-hmm. um and again that's where i wish they had done more that i would have liked there maybe in the epilogue it's mentioned but Maybe it could have been more of a heroic self-sacrifice, even if he didn't die. But maybe some sort of reconciliation of sorts with the doctor and the brigadier and Benton. You know, that would have been... I would have liked to have seen that sort of closure because this is the last story we get those three in the same story. They don't even really interact. And the Brigadier and Benton are just sidelined in the second half of the story. And I don't... You know, and that's where it becomes, you know, a B-movie. Yeah. But I thought that was a little bit... One of the more psychologically realistic things in the story is that the Brigadier is not going to want to have any of him now. Yeah. I, like I said, a slight bit of realism of, okay, that, that career is burnt. Uh, let's, let's move on to the next thing. That I thought it made sense he didn't have that sort of coming to terms reconciliation with them. They, they don't want that, and he doesn't expect it. Well, you don't it. necessarily have to go back to unit and be forgiven, you know, but I think some understanding of why he did what he did and... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even having interaction between he and the Brigadier might have been an interesting moment, but I think it's a little too early in Doctor Who's history to have that. Saying he should have been hanged or something like that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I doubt that would have happened at this point, but... Or it's to quip. (laughs) Yeah. Another area where I felt like it was a missed opportunity, and oh gosh, I'm being so negative with this, but it, it really bothered me is the Tommy subplot. Oh, yeah. Mm. Oh, man. The pinball wizard. Which has not aged well. Well, it's, you know, it's trying to be a little bit flowers for Algernon. And I think the actor, when you watch it on TV, his performance is actually very, I think, very sensitive. And you see, like, when he's reading the poem by Blake, he he kind of starts off as he's sounding it off. He's like, that's pretty. And his almost typical way of saying, and then he corrects, he says, no that's beautiful. And, and Dix writes that moment more as just a thought process, like a stream of consciousness. And because you don't have the actor who I think does handle the, the part with sensitivity, you have a very insensitive portrayal with Terrence Dix. And one of the things that really bothers me about Of Mice and Men, because this is a book that I've taught many, many times because this is in the curriculum, is how 
with Lenny and of Mice and Men's John Steinbeck is always using animal words like Lenny's paw. He snorts like a horse, you know, there's when he's drinking the water, like, and at one point Dix talks about Tommy's paw and he uses the word paw instead of hand. And to me, that's, you know, I'm not like someone who's going to say, okay, cancel Terrence Dix. We can't read this, but it's, it, it, to me, it just reinforces that, that stereotype of people with mental disabilities being somewhat animalistic. And I, yeah. and it's yeah. a problem I have with Of Mice and Men, I, where Lenny is treated like an animal and is dehumanized, and yet it's supposed to be this big inspirational story. And, and the same thing happens with Tommy. And then I love the line where he says, where she says, you're just like everyone else. And he says, I sure hope not. You know, I think that's a brilliant moment. <laughs> yes. I, yes. yes. But I, I think Dix's description and word choice really, really sat wrong with me. And, and I think maybe because I haven't read this since I started teaching Of Mice and Men, it hadn't I wasn't aware of that in previous readings of this, but it really stood out to me this time around. Well, and you're right in that the the animal comparison and that the spiders are actual animals who ascend in intelligence because of this blue crystals, and we're meant to see a parallel that to that with Tommy, who starts as a human being. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't even notice that language, but you're right. That's I, I couldn't put my finger quite on what seemed off about it. But I think that's it. The, the not quite human until the blue crystal. He does manage to avoid the R word, for which I give him some props. Yes. Because given the year that this was written, given the era that this was written in, that word would have been still in coinage. Well, it would have been used in a clinical way, not as like a offhanded insult you fling at someone. Right, exactly. And so there is that, at least. And you're right, Trey, it's definitely, well, the... It's definitely flowers for Algernon, but the difficulty is that Terrence Dix doesn't quite have Daniel Key's ability to do prose in the same way. And he's not trying to either. He's just trying to compress a six-parter into 120 pages, which luckily he manages to do. Speaking of that chase sequence, Allison, mm-hmm. it goes on for 13 minutes. <laughs> yeah. And was it as good on screen as it was in my mind? Yeah. <laughs> right. No, no, no. Um, no. It means that Dix, Dix gives it about a minute per page, and that includes everything before the chase, <laughs> leading up to it. So that's about it. I mean, he does give us some, you know, interior thought of the, the hovercraft driver, weirdly enough, and a few other characters. But yeah, he doesn't flesh these characters out in the way that we would hope that he would do. And this is an early enough target novelization that he should be doing that, right? I thought that he did that very well with Lupton and that often the um, key moment of characterization is some kind of revelation about the person's past that makes them more sympathetic. And this is one that makes them both more sympathetic and more evil at the same time. And I thought it was just, well, just masterfully concise. Just a couple of sentences. And, and, and we see what he was and what he became. And I actually kind of like the whole evil salesman. Uh, okay. <laughs> I love this. Not that people who are in sales are automatically evil, but um, this good one is. Yeah, let me see if I can. Let's hear. It's so brief. There was a savage bitterness in Lipton's voice. He sat on the bed, gazed into the past, uh, gazing into the past. Picture me, bright young salesman, sales manager, finally sales director. 
I gave them 25 years of my life. Then the takeover boys moved in. Golden handshake for poor old Lupton. So I set out on my own. You know what happened? The big boys broke me. Very efficiently, too. I'm still looking for some of the bits. And that's a pretty sympathetic story. Many people have a, a version of that as a career story. And then Barnes asked him if he's seeking peace of mind. <laughs> he responded, no, I want to see them grovel before me and eat dirt. And I love the response. You mean when you want to take the firm over that ruined you? Something like that. Right. <laughs> no, no, I want to take over the whole world. But <laughs> And he's going to do it through the power of meditation, strangely enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. As a teacher facing going back into face-to-face learning in a couple of weeks, um, I'm I'm beginning, I, I feel a little bit of Lupton at this wow. moment. Wow, you are. I'm sorry <laughs> to hear that. Yeah. So, no, I mean, sorry to hear that you're doing that. Not that you, I'm also sorry if you're announcing that you're turning evil. Well, I'm not turning evil, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, you're not turning the, evil the, yet. The, the, the first stage where you get a little bit embittered and disillusioned, you know, is, is mm-hmm. beginning to happen a little bit. So. Yeah, give you another 10 years and you'll be at that retreat and hopefully there won't be spiders in the basement. Oh, if I go to an all-men's retreat, it's going to be very different. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Speaking of... We're thinking of Satanism. The, so that's a segue into one of my favorite moments... <laughs> Um, oh God! There's some moments with the brigadier in the early bits that just oh, had me giggling moments. for the wrong reasons because it's not how it's intended. But of course, I'm you know an immature gay man and very embarrassed. This is when Professor Clegg is reading the watch and it says, yeah. "Very embarrassed by this reminder of his days as a gay young subaltern." And especially because it happens in Brighton, and Brighton has a huge gay scene. And it's 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 a it's kind of like a Fire Island, you know, province town. You know, you've got London, <laughs> which is New York City, and then you've got Brighton, where you know the the British gays retire to. And quite a few famous gays from Doctor Who fandom are living there. And then when you take that into account, he's looking at Fatima. Her remaining veils undulated from the stage, and the doctor said, <laughs> "You seem to enjoy that, all right? Very fit that girl." So they're bringing it air solemnly. <laughs> Extraordinary muscular control must adapt some of these movements as exercises for the men. Oh, 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 my gay little heart just imagined all sorts of spin-off things for the unit men and as they that. do these, you know. <laughs> well, and it's not creepy at all. He's, he's admiring the performance. Yeah. It's actually creepier on screen, to be honest. Oh. <laughs> Very skillful. Yeah, just a little bit. Speaking of that watch, we will eventually meet Doris, but it'll be a very long time. Let's just say that. We will know who Doris is eventually. And we also get that rare spectacle of having the doctor call, uh, calling the Brigadier Alistair, which is something his successor will do a lot more. Of mm. course, he'll feed the Brigadier far less often, but there you go. I'm going to point out something that's a, a bit of a change which is just odd, and Trey will correct me, I'm sure, if uh, I get this wrong. I'm almost certain that when the Brigadier makes a call to the unit doctor in the televised episode, he does say, Dr. Sullivan. I think you're right. I think you're right. And that would have been an introduction to our next Doctor Who companion, who we won't see until the next story, as played by Ian Martyr. But for some reason, Dix here changes that name to Sweetman. 
which Sweet is a name we've seen before. Okay. Yeah, we've seen that name before, and I can't remember where, but it's it's tickling at my brain for some reason. And it doesn't make any damn sense because he wrote this book at virtually the same time as he wrote the novelization for Robot, and Giant Robot, the novelization of the next story, actually came out before this one. So it's not quite clear why. I wonder. I wonder if that was an earlier script draft that he was just going by the scripts and he just was cranking it out really quickly. Could have been. Okay. Could have been. Though you'd think that somebody who script edited both stories would know if he was looking at an earlier script. But yeah, it's it's a weird little thing, and it's something that I specifically wanted to point out because it. I hate anything that goes against Harry Sullivan. Yeah. Because he's one of my favorite companions, shall we say. Having no idea who Harry Sullivan is, I was I actually loved that the motor pool person loves all the doctor's oddball vehicles and finds them a lot of fun to examine and maintain. And when some weirdo comes in behaving suspiciously and says he wants to see the doctor, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, he's over there. <laughs> Another weirdo to see that doctor. Right, exactly. You want to see the real doctor or do you want to see our weird doctor? <laughs> He's got one of each, you know. He doesn't phrase it quite like that, but just says, you know, no, the other doctor. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what did you What did you all think of the spiders themselves? Yeah, I was going to ask that. <laughs> I had difficulty imagining how they might be portrayed on screen in any sort of... They're not described at great length, mm-hmm. and I, I was confused by their physicality because on the one hand... I understood correctly they were supposed to be evolved spiders like actual earth arachnids but on the other hand when they possess people and sort of jump on their backs they seem to be in a less tangibly physical visible state so I found them kind of hard to visualize and conceptualize yeah spiders about the size of their body would be about the size of a football and their okay. legs would be proportionate. At, at times, I, I thought they were being described as larger than humans. Yeah, but yeah, I kept imagining them much larger. Well, the queen is. And the great one is. The great one, yeah. But those are, well, the queen actually is not not actually larger than the human, but... She's the, a little the, bit bigger than the other spiders, but she's not the great one. And There was such a lead-up to seeing the great one and such a lead-up to seeing Compo that I thought they were going to turn out to be perhaps the same entity. Oh, that's interesting. That's a better story. (laughs) I think think part of it, too, is that for them to have been so powerful, I imagine them to have needed to be much larger. Because if if they are the size that they are, it's like, how have the humans not taken them out? even with their mental acuity, you know? Right. And I think that's where I've always had a bit of a problem with the story where suspension of disbelief falls. It's a science fiction program. I shouldn't, but the physics of teleporting to a planet in the future and the time travel thing, that seems to me almost a step too far. It's, it's really hard for me to sus- suspend my disbelief on that regard. Yeah. Right. How, how Lupton and his friends even thought of conjuring this thing in the first place what they were aiming for that never made sense to me and that said i like the spiders themselves like mainly and i do have the advantage maybe of hearing this in the tv 
one of the voices was by the same one who did Alpha Centauri, and they are all bitchy queens. They're yes, like, they're they, it is Mean Girls with spiders. And then I, another one that it's like a line that often repeats myself, like when I'm trying to deal with like a Karen or someone, the <laughs> spider says to Lepin, this human is stupid. Send him away. <laughs> and it's like, sometimes I just have to remind myself, like, whether I'm looking at the internet and looking at the comment se- sections, I just like, this man is stupid. Send him away. This human is stupid. Send it away. And it's like, and it's like, oh, you look, he's like, what did she say? It's like, oh, you look tired and she wants you to rest. And like, I wanted there to be more of that humor because the, the spiders all vying for each other. And maybe it's time to eat the queen. And, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. I love all of that. It's just very, the, the camp part of it is, is a lot of fun. I was reading a Twitter thread earlier this week where someone was saying that this lovely spider who'd lived out front all summer had uh, laid an egg sack and they hadn't seen the spider again. They were kind of bummed out that the spider was dead. And this very annoyed person came into the comment saying that E.B. White had brainwashed us all to believe (laughs) that every species of spider dies after laying an egg sack. And that's not true. Some of them live for decades. (laughs) (laughs) However, in my mind, you know, to me, the most, I, I don't have, I can't cry on command like a lot of people or some people can make themselves do just by force of will. But I can do it if I think about the part of Charlotte's Web where Wilbur is so excited for the egg oh, sack nah, to don't, hatch. Don't and then, oh, I, can, I could probably make myself cry, you know, on the recording here. And, he, you know, they all start to leave him. And he asks, where yeah. are you going? Well, they're going to the spaceship. And Wilbur is well rid of them. <laughs> In my, my head canon here, the three nice ones stay on the farm with Wilbur. <laughs> And all the others go to the spaceship. <laughs> no, no, they go to the spaceship. And they, <laughs> and they as Trey is planning to, turn evil. <laughs> dominate the humans. Oh, oh, the spaceship. I'm sorry. Yes, I was the, like, I forgot we were talking about this story. <laughs> yeah, because in this story, yes. They say the spi- I actually liked that instead of the spiders being some alien species, they're earth spiders. But they, you know, they're blew off to the mountain. I okay. think that gives, that gives you a preview of how I feel about this story, that I'd be more interested to talk about Charlotte's Web than I would about this <laughs> one. Well, but help me remember this. I found the sequence where the Doctor originally got the stone to be delightful, because it was just sort of slapstick thing of, you know, he remembered this as being a, a sort of a, a wonderful, beautiful, peaceful planet where he could go bird watching and rock collecting, and everything is blue and everything tries to gleefully murder him. <laughs> yes. But I didn't remember that there was anything special about this stone other than he was looking at stones. This one looks good. I don't remember anything about him plucking it from the middle of a web or it having any significance. I don't think we even see that happen. We don't. In the we novelization, don't. there is something about him picking the stone, I think. But I thought it was just he was trying to get at the mountain. You know, he wanted to look at rocks. Oh, there's a good rock. I think that's the case. And that's one of the problems I have with this story that... This special crystal that he got is suddenly the very last one that the Great One needs to do whatever the fuck she's doing. And it just so happens to be the one crystal that will kill both of them if it's put in place in this web of crystals that she's 
constructing. He found it laying on a hillside when he was running away from the murder unicorns. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so the justification of having it is kind of like, okay, he has said that the blue crystal has healing properties on the mind. He used it on Mike Gates. He uses it on, well, he doesn't use it on um, Tommy here. Tommy ends up using it on himself. So obviously it's a passive effect, which is just bizarre. So why does she need that one? Did they just run out of blue crystals once the humans showed up and they enslaved the humans eventually? Bring up a good point here. It's a passive effect crystal that worked on Tommy just because Tommy had it in his dresser drawer and Mm -hmm. it did not seem to have that same effect on others who handled it. Yeah. Well, they didn't need their minds fixing, I guess. Yeah, maybe it only works so much. It doesn't fix assholery. The spiders didn't start off needing their minds fixed. It, like, made them larger and smarter and stronger and Kanye-esque in some way. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, but I'm saying it's... No one man should have all that power. Thank <laughs> you. It's exactly. unsatisfying how inconsistently it does or does not work. Yes. I don't mind it being far-fetched, but the I don't mind a, a not-so-internal logic, but it doesn't have an internal logic that makes you say, oh, it also does that to that person. Okay, that makes sense. It's more like, yeah. okay, here's what it does on this day that ends in Y. <laughs> <laughs> and, and for that matter, the whole idea of the spiders wanting to go to Earth, it's like, wait, you came from Earth. Why are you wanting to go back to Earth. You've got this nice little fiefdom here. You seem to be doing quite well for yourselves. That I think I get and kind of liked. One of the nicer little moments here, I thought, was when we first go to the human village, and we have the sentence here, the Spider Queen is going to come through town with her servant slash guard, and we have this trumpet. The effect on the little crowd was extraordinary. Everyone broke and ran for the shelter of the huts. I thought that the implication is they're scattering like spiders when someone walks through. So the the idea was the spiders want to go back to Earth and reverse rules planet-wide, and now the humans of Earth will scatter when they walk through. They kind of want revenge. I I, I could be wrong. Yeah, that would have been more interesting, I think. There was a sequel to this um, that the Big Finish Audios did with the Eighth Doctor. And it's kind of like a 21st century version of the Buddhism where it's all the era of self-help books and everything. So like there's this movement called the Eightfold Path. The second part though, part two, the story is called World Wide Web, which I thought was a bit clever, but it's it's kind of like using the web stuff with like internet and that's how the, like, the spiders <laughs> are gonna take over. Of course, because Wi-Fi is bad as we know. Even Doctor <laughs> Who's told us that. Amazingly. Ah, hmm. I want to quickly cover how we feel about Sarah Jane in the story, because she's starting to come into her own a little bit more as the character we'll, we'll later know, finally. But how do we feel about her in this? Dead silence. <laughs> <laughs> That's about it. I, I think you've, you've kind of summarized it. She's, I don't know, there's, there's bits of... In pieces of her here but she's still like i like that it does kind of allude to that she has a life outside of the doctor and unit finally you know, yeah you know, which often doesn't happen with companions although it should have been there with joe and liz but usually they're traveling with him so i like that she's kind of this agent you know she's her own agent she's got her own career but again it's 
uh, it's kind of like a Lois Lane sort of thing where she's looking for the story, but she's not quite happy with her career, but she puts up with it anyway. I don't know. It, it wasn't a very gripping secondary story. I'd like to read the article she has. She's working on the beginning, uh, the grassroots resistance to property speculations. <laughs> property speculators in London. Well, I think this is what... Uh, you know, Barry Letts was developing in um, this. This seems to be one of the stories he was trying to retell in a better way on uh, what's the first Barry Letts original story that we read? Paradise um, of Death. Yes. Paradise of Death, where there are aliens who want to come take over Earth, which I know there are other Doctor Who stories where there are aliens who would like to rule Earth. But it starts off with her, you know, try, hustling around, getting work, freelance. And I, I felt like this seemed another story that he wanted to tell in his own way, perhaps, in, in Paradise of Death. But then she doesn't have a lot to do later. That's true. But at least she's not writing romance novels or trying to get Clorinda to publish a story about Daleks on another planet. Who would think that that's a good idea? Here, at least, she's being a solid journalist, and when she does get the chance to do journalism in a few of the later stories, we also see that come up again. But, yeah, she's not quite cooked yet, that's for sure. But I, I see the things that Letts found appealing about the characters and wanted to play with himself in his original novels. Mm-hmm. He wanted to play with himself. He said he wanted to play with for himself. But you may actually have hit on his major motivation there. (laughs) 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 I suppose he could have been a bit of a one-handed typist. um, God, well, it was the 90s after all. All Well, I think the theory that she's both the sort of fantasy girl, but also the character that he identifies with as a young, starving writer in his stories. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. All right. Well, I suppose we'd better tackle the regeneration then, because that's what this whole thing is leading to. My, my gut reaction is I kind of wanted to be snarky when he said, let's talk about the regeneration. Say, what regeneration? Because it doesn't actually happen in the book. It's two sentences. Two, two sentences. sentences. Yeah. We, we see the beginning of it. Yeah. Here we go again. The features began to blur and change. Well, bless my soul, said the brigadier. Here we go again. And it's just this abrupt end. So, And, and now yeah. I have 16 tons running through my head all evening. <laughs> the straw boss said, well, bless my soul. A number nine cold and the straw boss said, well, bless my soul. You load well, we do get the word tons. regenerate, finally. So there's that. In fact, if I'm remembering correctly, it's the first time that the word has been used in the televised series. It's not the first time we've seen it in the books, obviously, because, yeah, we've got books from the 80s, but... Whatever I'm supposed to get out of Choji's sort of regeneration, but also astral projection, but also something else, I I failed to get whatever was being prompted there. Yeah. As a contrast or an example, or it completely lost me in such a way that I was not interested enough to go back and try to get it. Well, Allison, I know for a fact that you have seen something similar to this, because when we went to Chicago TARDIS, we saw Legopolis, which is Tom Baker's last story. And there was a character in that story called The Watcher, which was a future projection yes, of the Doctor. Yes, yes, Yeah, that's about the closest equivalent, but even that wasn't terribly well explained. And it's only ever done in these two stories. They never do that in any other Doctor Who stories. So it's, it's fine to have kind of a, a 
mysterious recurring kind of scenario like that. I guess what's less clear here is whether or not Kampo slash Choji is manifesting some sort of different and higher ability than the Doctor has, even though he is also a renegade Time Lord, also this elder, more senior being that may have these different developed abilities. Or is this something that the Doctor also can do? Or he has the potential to do it, but that's where I I, I got kind of confused about what they were trying to show. You would think that if this is the Doctor's teacher, then yes, this would be something he's been taught to do. But why an alien Time Lord would need to come to Earth to learn Buddhism when it turns out he was already kind of a Buddhist without that name back home. So he's making money off running the Buddhist center and being served yes. by the Buddhist monks, I think. Oh, I know. And it's kind of a racket. Yeah, either that or he's got this this other racket going where he's running these centers specifically to draw the negative ones so he can keep them away from society, and this time <laughs> it just happened to fail. I love that. <laughs> Buddhist like, reform school. Yes, exactly. <laughs> It's like, we're not going to allow you because you're actually here for good reasons. You, sir, however, are here for bitterness. All the angry ex-salesmen. <laughs> yes, you Come can beat stay. your drum here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because you got to know that he's he knows what's going on in that damn basement. And it's amazing that he lets it continue to go. But <laughs> the uh, One of the first episodes of Supernatural, in that first season of that show, you can tell in the background there's like one good writer and the rest of them are not and just one person seems to have good jokes and there there are some teenagers who break into a sort of supposedly haunted house and one of them says as he walks through the basement and here we are in the evil root cellar where satan cans all his vegetables (laughs) 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 i don't know why struck me as one of the funniest lines i've ever heard on tv even though that is not objectively funny the oh, funniest line of all it's time. <laughs> well, that not it's not a top ten of all time, objectively, like it is in my heart. But no. uh, here, <laughs> I just imagine them. The mandala <laughs> is like a can of beets, <laughs> <laughs> some vegetables that Satan had canned. <laughs> that's why they have to be in the cellar to go visit the canned vegetables. More like the idea of Satan having to do like affirmations and things like. <laughs> I'm I am evil enough and I am wicked enough, you know. <laughs> and damn it, people fear me. Well, and he wants to keep eating organic through the winter, but he's on a budget and he's got the jars, so he needs to can. <laughs> exactly. Wouldn't you think that he would can the most exquisite vegetables, and wouldn't they be worthy of your attention and medication? Med- <laughs> meditation, uh, Freudian medication slip there. Well. Yes, service of prayer and medication. Oh Lord. One thing I'll point out about the regeneration, it kind of became an official fan lore. I think it was maybe in one of Paul Cornell's books, but the idea that the journey from him seeing the great one back to unit HQ and the TARDIS actually like took weeks or months where his body is just decaying and it took for, and he, and he had this torturous process. And of course mm-hmm. that would have been one of the books that came out in the nineties where let's make everything dark, you yeah, know, because yeah. that was the nineties thing Arr. to do. <laughs> but there, it does create an extra level of pathos. And I think for me on the page, it's all there. But again, this is the trick with novelizations. I, I like the regeneration scene because I like the performances of Elizabeth Sladen and John Pertwee and Nick mm-hmm. Courtney as they're dealing with the loss and 
Sarah in particular, you know, is is crying and John Pertwee gives a nice farewell performance there. But all of those subtleties are just kind of lost and as it's yeah. transcripted here. Now I'm imagining that there's a deviant art illustration somewhere of like the doctor's semi decaying body covered in spiders on his way back to Earth. <laughs> Oh, I'm yeah. sure there are tons. Copyright 1995. <laughs> I'm sure there must be. Anything else we want to say about this? I don't have much to say. I mean, I've, I, I'm, I'm very excited for the next batch of books that I would like to, to join you in um, because I have quite a lot of positive things to say about those. Okay. okay, so you'll definitely be bringing, coming back for uh, the giant robot. Well, yes, because the, anything that sits with, look, Brigadier, it's growing, screams Sarah. You know, <laughs> the back of her. Uh, that's... that's what she screamed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let me... Um... <laughs> I know, right? Oh, God. I had a couple of more lines that I thought were amusing. I like yeah. the note from Joe that says, starts with, so doctor, if you're away on a cheap day trip to Mars or something, perhaps you could look after it for me. Uh, Brigadier, if you're whooping it up in Geneva, <laughs> like her, her speculating on wh where they might go <laughs> for the day. <laughs> I like that cheap day trip to Mars and whooping it up at the... <laughs> She doesn't say whooping it up in Geneva in the story, but she does say if you're off in Geneva or something like that, but whooping it up, yeah, I, I love that because it sounds very much like something Katie Manning would say. And uh, at the beginning of the car chase, we're told there's a cop who is uh, snoozing and then he, you know, hears this, you know, <laughs> hears and then sees this multi-vehicle chase go by, but it starts with a police panda car was tucked into the side of a little country lane and police panda is capitalized. Yes. <laughs> so I just chose to visualize this entire scene with like, you know, the helicopter and the sort of flying saucer vehicle and Bessie and various other vehicles and the hover car as pursued by sort of like a police dog, like a canine unit and the police <laughs> panda car. <laughs> And, you know, he seems a little disoriented on the radio because he's trying to describe these wild sights and he just woke up. Plus, he's a panda. And now I actually think that this might be a solution. Is that like the cat bus from Totoro? I, I, that just went completely over my head, so I don't know. Someone I know what it. you're talking about. Yeah, I do. The panda car. I don't, I don't know, but you just definitely won that interaction. But I'm, just, I'm just developing this concept of... There, there are, there's a lot of problems, actually, with police dogs, but police panda, like, everyone is going to be <laughs> calm around the panda because they want the panda to, to like them. Oh my God. <laughs> you also don't know what the panda will do. It seems slow-moving and gentle, but it's still a bear. But Oh, I, uh. I so don't want to burst your balloon on that one. Because I love that idea. <laughs> but that you're going to tell me they're actual panda. police pandas and that they are horribly mistreated <laughs> and no. used to maul people or something. No, no, not at all. Not at all. But panda car actually refers to a specific type of police vehicle that's painted with large panels of light blue and white. And here's the weirdest thing. Oh, I assumed it was black and white because you told us before it was a police car, but I assumed it was a black and white. Hence the panda. Yes. Well, here's the thing. It's black and white on TV mm -hmm. because this specific type of car started being used in the 60s. And there was a show 
on, in the 1960s, for well, longer than the 60s, which I've mentioned a couple times, called Zed Cars. And it's about police. And the, it was done in black and white. So the show's cars looked black and white, so they became known as panda cars by the British populace. And TV had something to do with that. Not Doctor Who, but TV did. Hmm. So it actually became such a part of the slang that Terrence Sticks is using it in 1975 when he writes this book. So that's kind of cool, but I'd much prefer the panda cars to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> police panda. Oh well, not, not panda police, it's just police panda. And there are a couple of nice <laughs> descriptions, I thought, that Dix had towards the beginning. As it, when Lepton first experiences this, the spider possessing him, uh, it's described as he felt an icy tendril of thought reaching out to touch his mind. The spider spoke to him, not out loud, of course, but inside his head. Uh, her voice somehow Lepton knew the spider, the creature was female, was clear, sweet, and icily evil. And I thought that was a really, the, the icy tendril was a really mm-hmm. nice description. And then oh, yeah. um, when Sarah arrives on the planet, I actually thought it was the m- most memorable bit that she got after she was writing the article that I want to read. <laughs> Sarah landed somewhere with a jolt, eyes tight shut. At first, she didn't dare open them for fear of what she might see. But she couldn't prevent the impressions of her surroundings flooding in. It was hot, dry, and hot. Yet at the same time, the air had a sort of richness, a not unpleasant spicy tang, as if it contained elements she wasn't used to. Yes. And that, I think, is one of the times that Dix actually shows some of that brilliance that he had in the earlier novelizations by giving us a sense of what an alien planet would seem like when you first stepped out on it, because it would it would smell different, it would feel different, it would sound different, it would taste different, obviously, because that's a function of smell. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, it's just a brilliant moment, whereas the transition on screen... From Sarah going from the basement to Metabilis 3 is a really bad blue screen effect. That's literally what it is. She's standing in front of, the, front of a blue screen. They key in the basement background. Then they key in the planet background. And it looks terrible. Is it just a fade? <laughs> is it instantaneous? It, there is, is no it, rich, spicy tang of the yeah, unfamiliar? Well, there's not even a, well the fade is really fast so you can't really call it a fade it, it's okay. not instantaneous and there's no spiciness or tang to it at all mm. except for you know if you're drinking tang and you happen to blow it out your nose because you laugh at that moment then yes there's a spicy tang to it but apart from that <laughs> I'm sure somebody was drinking tang at that time I don't know mm. who knows god damn it all <laughs> I have uh, just going going back to the chase. There's the bit about the doctor really enjoying driving the hovercraft. Yes. <laughs> the doctor spared a moment from his pursuit of Lupton to appreciate the hovercraft. Nice, nippy little thing. A pleasure to drive. He wondered if, <laughs> if he could talk the brigadier into getting one for unit. Bound to come in useful. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And he, that is Dick's acknowledging a real world thing. John Pertwee loved vehicles. And so that chase sequence was specifically for Pertwee, so that he could drive a hovercraft. Oh my god. <laughs> so that's, to some degree, Dick's acknowledging, yeah, we're doing this to send the old boy off, uh, so yeah. Okay. <laughs> if we have that's to. something I read sure. recently about 
Michael Dorn is that he is a licensed pilot and has done a variety of, I think, USO type things, but not direct, not USO, but like directly for the Air Force, wherein instead of being paid in money, they let him fly things. <laughs> so he, he's flown all kinds of jets um, as payment for his appearances. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, nice work if you can get it. Yeah. yeah. As I say, it's, I'm sure it's a lot of fun. <laughs> That comment about how extremely homicidal Eric is. Arak. Eric. Um, A-R-A-K. Eric. I, I'm kind of surprised he wipes out all the human guards. And the doctor says something to the effect of, well, I understand if you need to kill them all. That well, yeah, there's that line. In fact, I have it in the notes. The doctor nodded sadly. He knew there was no gentle way of breaking the grip of terror that had held Metabilis for so long. But as always, the taking of life saddened and sickened him. The thing that surprised me is... He's not killing all the spiders, he's killing all the human guards. And that was a little surprising. Yeah, and it may just be that there's no releasing them, even though Eric and the other guy end up under their control later anyway. But I think it's exactly that. There's no way to release them from the spiders' control until the spiders themselves are dead. So maybe that's it. I I don't know. You're probably right. Yeah, they didn't try putting one of those quartz stones on their foreheads, though, so... <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah, they, it would... You know, I often complain if you're going to do something like that, you have to mention it and deal with it. And here they did, and it, I guess I just can't be satisfied. Now that's 90s, isn't it? You hold off the spiders with the powers of crystals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. God. <laughs> it's just more terrible. 80s. You yeah, yeah, that's true. Everything's I pink. So. Yeah, agreed. So, as we always do... Let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers, then follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of 5 stars is 3.66. Several people from our Goodreads group wrote about this one, so I'm going to be reading pared-down versions of their comments, and I'm going to be reading them quickly. Michael Hickerson gives it two stars, though his review seems to be more about the story than the book. He does raise an excellent point. He says, however much the marketing team for Metabilis 3 is being paid, it's clearly (laughs) not enough. The Doctor regales us with stories about how gorgeous the Blue Planet is, but both visits, on screen and on page, aren't exactly the paradise he describes. The first time he's chased by huge predatory animals, and the next time he finds that the humans have been enslaved by a group of overzealous spiders. Maybe there was a period of a few years when it was great to go to the famous Blue Planet, but clearly the times the Doctor visits aren't it. T.E. Hodden writes, A fairly good adaptation of a story that has some really great moments, some troubling moments and attitudes that haven't aged so well, that's true, and some long, bland sequences that could have been nipped and tucked into a sleeker story. Perhaps the biggest disappointment is that the stakes just never seem to raise as high as they have in other regeneration stories. It feels like the stakes are considerably lower than in the other stories of the season so far. Our Patreon, James Sumnall, 
gives it 3.5 stars and says, A difficult task to condense a six-part serial into 120-ish pages, but this feels like a better result for Dix than some of the mid-term Baker episodes he crushes into a lesser page count. What seems to work is Sarah's retrospective tour of the monastery and the curtailed vehicle chase segment. This allows the plot to trot along at a good pace, Added to that is a little more colorful prose, which certainly helps. I think Dix showed a little more care with this one, maybe not as much as his earlier titles, though. I also like the character of Campo Chochi. This seemed to be a precursory aid to the Doctor's own regeneration, helping the audience and Sarah understand the process, analogous to the ninth Doctor's regeneration, perhaps? Oh, that's a point. You could probably argue that the entire first season of the Ninth Doctor is preparation for the audience to be ready for the Tenth Doctor, but there you go. And finally, our new Patreon, as of this episode, David Davis, uh, I think it's Dave Davis, but I'm not sure, Dave, I'm sorry about that, gives it four stars and says, often the main difference between the televised version of a story and the novelization is the special effects, the reader's mind having so much better resources. What did jar was some of the worst acting I've ever seen in Doctor Who. Yeah, we haven't <laughs> talked about that. One of the denizens of Metabulous 3, actually it's Eric's mother, in particular sounded as if she'd been dragged in from the street to read lines she'd never seen before from a cue card. In a second language, no less. No, I shot you, shot, take him. Sabo, my husband, my love, why did you do it? Why? why? Woman, get back! Thankfully, in the book we're spared that. And Metabilis 3 is much more convincing in prose. Back on Earth on television, we were treated to some of the best acting I've seen in Doctor Who, and it's a shame to lose John Kane's sensitive performance, and that's as Tommy. Fortunately, it was so strong, I envisioned him as Tommy and hear his voice when reading. I'll be interested to hear what someone who hasn't seen the story on TV makes of this character as it could easily have been patronizing, especially in those long-ago, politically incorrect days. Well, you heard what we had to say. Yeah. So, Trey, since you are our guest, let's hear from you first. Out of five stars, what would you give this? I would give it, you know, I rank it based on how good of a novelization they are. You know, do they do a good job adapting the TV script? And I would give this a three star simply because it would have been two stars, but I do like the prologue and some of the extra bits where you fleshed out characters, like even like the minor characters during the chase scene. So there is some attempts at characterization that make it three stars. It's, it's a passable adaptation, but um, not one of my favorites. Horrible. So three stars. But All should right. be two, which is some little sparkles. Right. <laughs> okay. All right. And Dalton? I think I would agree with Trey. I would, I would say three for this one. The writing is, is pretty good for Terrence Dix. Um, it's not it's not as quick and lazy as some of the other ones where he seems bored with it. But it doesn't have some of that glimmer that we've seen out of some of the other books that we've read. So I would say three for me. Okay. And Allison? I'm going to go two, which I, I actually found a lot to enjoy in the first part of the book. And I thought the plot just sort of exploded into a star. <laughs> or exploded in the way that a star might at the end which is fine but i it had a marked drop off in quality where we would expect there to be a lot of extra loving care yeah paid to characterization at the end and still we got some very complicated plot machinations that were unsatisfying relative to the stakes towards the end there we have a a bit i'd like to comment and i'd like to quote about uh deals with some of my favorite themes he was at the junction of four tunnels <laughs> 
All the tunnels looked exactly alike. (laughs) That is many tunnels as the doctor has run through and with his many incarnations here. That for his last story, we could have a a bit more distinct tunnel. And we had that at the beginning. And then at the end, it just looked exactly like other tunnels we had seen before. So two stars for me. Okay. And as for me, I would say somewhere between those. So definitely 2.5. I've never liked the story. And it's rather insulting, I find, that this was Pertwee's send-off. Because obviously... If Delgado had lived, then the send-off would have been the last story with the Master and the last story with the Third Doctor, which would have been, well, maybe more epic. I don't know, because obviously this is 1974 and they're trying on the budget that they have. That being said, Pertwee's last scene is so spectacularly touching that it is criminal not to do something more with that on the page. Well, we had that with Joe's last scene. Yeah, and yeah, that's the thing. The, the show doesn't really handle goodbyes very well. The books should, and sometimes the books have. We've had some good goodbye scenes with some of our companions. We should have a better goodbye scene for a doctor, especially since this is essentially the first goodbye scene that Dix is ever going to write for a doctor. He'll get better at it. He won't get to write that many, but he'll get better at it. But still, this, yeah, it could have been better. And, uh, yeah, don't even get me started on the plot. 2.5. There we are. Tony, I've got to say something that's going to, I think, disappoint you. Yes? I've been staring at this cover for an hour now, and now I'm ready to frame an enlargement of it and hang it on my wall. I actually... Uh, j- just the lower right-hand corner. I actually have, just in these last minutes, grown to love the four panel, <laughs> the overlapping four faces, the transforms from someone who is Pertwee-esque but not Pertwee to someone who is Baker-esque but not Baker. Just, like, look along the line, like, chin, <laughs> chin, chin, mouth, 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 eyes, eyes bangs. It, 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 it's a small masterpiece. Okay, well, you do you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, guys. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we begin a new season with a new theme, which I mixed myself. Ooh. Ooh. New cover art. Yeah. Uh, We're going to have new art on the Facebook page and on the SoundCloud. Oh, God, I have to do that, don't I? And a new doctor as we discuss Terrence Dick's novelization of his own script, The Giant Robot. And yes, we may actually cover Junior Doctor Who and The Giant Robot as well, if I can get a copy fast enough for my panelists to read, because, you know, boy, howdy. What is Junior Doctor Who? <laughs> the, oh, is it like oh, a twelve-year-old Time Lord? Um, well, you know how the Target books are meant for kids. Mm-hmm. The Junior Doctor Who books were meant for younger kids. Okay, so it won't be a child Doctor, is what I'm getting at. No, <laughs> that's, that's what I was afraid no, no. of. It'd be like twenty points. It's not like in Sherlock like Two sentences a page. Yes, it, yeah, it's not going to be young Indiana Jones. It's going to that's, be yeah. That's, uh, that's what I was fearing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, there are pl- there's plenty to fear, trust me. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at 
Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word with no spaces. Also feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC. Or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, since it is 2020, email me directly at emperordalic at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Our soon-to-be former theme by Aaron S. is available on his YouTube channel at tinyurl.com forward slash y32b8f55, along with many, many others. Give him a follow and a thumbs up. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Why did you have to go back? I had to face my, my fear, Sarah. I had to face my fear. That was, was more important than just going on living. A tear, Sarah Jane? No, don't cry. While this life, uh, He is not dead. Oh, no. I don't think I can take much more. I'm sorry to have startled you, my dear. Won't you introduce me to your friend, Miss Smith? Oh, um, yes, this is the abbot of... No, it's Choji. I mean, it looks like Choji, but it is really Campo Rinpoche, I think. Thank you. That makes everything quite clear. The doctor is alive. No, you're wrong. He's dead. All the cells of his body have been devastated by the Metabilis crystals, but you forget. He is a time lord. I will give the process a little push and the cells will regenerate. He will become a new man. Literally? Of course, he will look quite different. Not again. And it will shake up the brain cells a little. You may find his behavior somewhat erratic. Well, when will all this happen? Well, there's no time like the present, is there? Goodbye. Look after him. Now, wait a moment. Look, Brigadier, look! I think it's starting. Well, here we go again. Here we go again. Here we go again. Here we go again.